as we begin to think about God's Word this morning, I want to, to raise a few questions for us to consider. Uh, and I hope that they'll kind of be lodged in our minds as we think about uh, Psalm 82 as a whole. Um, first, are, are we disturbed by the injustice that we see on earth? Or are we desensitized to it? Uh, if, if we are disturbed, why? Why is it disturbing? Who or, or what do we think is the fundamental source of injustice? Who or, who or what do we think is the answer to it? And, and when, when will all injustice in the world cease? And why? Psalm 82, it prompts us to consider these questions carefully. And it also answers a few of them by God's grace. Um, if you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles, open your Bibles to Psalm 82. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, uh, you should be able to find, Lord willing, uh, Psalm 82 beginning on page 492. 492. And while you're turning there, let me just offer a little bit of background for our study. The Psalms, as, as many of you might know, are a, a wonderful collection of prayers and poems and proclamations and songs of the ancient people of God. Uh, when we come to Psalm 82 in the Psalter, in the book of Psalms itself, it, it's interesting to note the context in which it springs up. Uh, the Psalms leading up to Psalm 82 are, are filled with prayers and petitions to God. The editors of, of many of the translations even capture this through the headings. So if you were to, to read through the Psalms leading up uh, to Psalm 82, uh, say beginning at, at Psalm 79, you would see that in Psalm 79, the people of Israel are asking God how long they must suffer. That desperate situation in Psalm 79 gives way to a petition from the people of Israel in Psalm 80. In Psalm 80, the people of Israel petitioned God to restore them, to restore their fortunes. And then in Psalm 81, God actually gives a response to the people of Israel. He essentially tells the people of Israel that He has answered their petitions before. He's rescued them and restored them, which means that He can answer them again. And this leads beautifully into Psalm 82. While in, in Psalm 81... We see an outline of the responsibility of God's people on earth to trust and obey Him. Psalm 82 reveals the judgment of the God of heaven. Israel is suffering injustice on earth, but the God of heaven will one day judge that injustice. Read Psalm 82. A Psalm of Asaph. God has taken His place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, He holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. 
sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now you'll notice that according to the ascription, this psalm was associated with Asaph, who was a Levite and a priest in the Old Testament. He was especially appointed to be chief minister before the Ark of the Lord. One of his duties was to sound the symbols, but he was especially supposed to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. While this psalm is fundamentally a psalm of petition, there is much to thank and praise God for from it. It opens in verse 1 with Asaph essentially having a prophetic vision into the courtroom of God. Then in verses 2 through 7, he sees God prosecuting a case against unjust rulers and closing with a promise that they will suffer the judgment of death. In verse 8, he adds to this vision a petition for God to arise and judge the earth. I don't know about you, but when I first read this psalm, I thought to myself, what on earth, or perhaps I should say, what in heaven is going on here? Several other questions came to my mind. Questions like, who are these little g gods mentioned in verses 1 and 6? What is the main problem that's being faced here? And how does the psalmist's petition there in verse 8 lead to a resolution of that problem? We're going to approach this psalm through the lens of those questions as I think they bring out the meaning and the hope of this psalm. We're going to study Psalm 82 under three headings. The people, the problem, and the petition. Let's begin first with the people mentioned in Psalm 82. And here I I especially want us to try and answer the question, who are these little g-gods spoken of in verses 1 and 6 of Psalm 82? Let's begin by reading the whole psalm again. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Who are these people? Scholars come up with all sorts of answers to this question. We're not going to wade through through kind of all of their proposals. Instead, we're simply going to work toward the answer to the question. Uh, Let's first try and just gather information from the text itself about who these uh, little g-gods are are from the psalm itself. Look at verse 1. According to verse 1, these people are obviously figures who will give an account to the God of Israel, to Yahweh. They give an account to the one true God. They are very clearly judged by Him throughout the rest of the psalm. They enter into His courtroom, His divine counselor, His divine assembly, as some translations say, and they hear His divine decree. According to verse 2, these are also people 
who have for some time judged unjustly and shown partiality to the wicked. In other words, these are people who have had some measure of authority, and not just authority anywhere, but authority on earth. They have not given justice to the weak and the fatherless. Verse 3. They have not maintained the right of the afflicted and the destitute. They are those who by their judgments and misuse of authority have placed the weak and the needy in a perilous position. Note here that God established government, rulers, for the good order of human society. Government was not a necessary evil in God's design. Government was actually given to be a terror to bad conduct. Sadly, what we see here is that the weak and the needy are those who now need to be rescued from the unjust decisions and preferential treatments of these rulers toward the wicked of all people. Further, from the Lord's rebuke of them, it strikes me that these people and figures should have been those who knew God's standards of justice. They should have been those who knew God's care for the weak, the fatherless, and the afflicted. And what has become clear, however, is they, that they neither have knowledge nor understanding. We can only wonder if these people willfully turned a blind eye towards God's standards of righteousness. Whatever the case may be, the, these people have proven that they walk around in darkness. And that idea of walking, we know from the very first psalm in the Psalter, carries with it the idea of, of stepping into a particular path and continuing on in that way. So what we're left with in verse 5 is a description of those who do not live by faith in God and walk in His righteous ways. In verse 6, additional descriptors are given about these persons. They're called gods and sons of the Most High. How can they be both gods and sons of the Most High? It's a natural question for those who have read the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament for almost any length of time. More often than not, when we read that, that word, little g, gods, in the Scriptures, we're meant to think of the false gods of the nations who surround Israel. In the Old Testament, Israel is constantly warned not to worship these false gods. That's not the case here. For these Little g-gods are also, according to verse 6, sons of the Most High. There are, they are those who have been viewed as sons of God uh, before in the Old Testament. Figures who have been viewed as sons of God before. Uh, most notably, Adam and Israel and the promised Messiah. These have all been viewed, viewed as sons of God before in, in the Old Testament Scriptures. It's not at all surprising that Adam was viewed as a son of God. After all, Adam was created and given life and breath from God in Genesis 1 and 2. Adam's sonship is also confirmed in the New Testament, particularly in Luke chapter 3, verse 38. What about Israel, the, the, the nation as a whole? Well, um, remember how Israel was enslaved in Egypt and God commissioned Moses to go and rescue the people of Israel? Well, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 23, the Lord gives Moses the command to say to Pharaoh... This is what Moses is to say to Pharaoh, Let my son go, that he may serve me. In other words, the Lord told Moses to refer to the people of Israel as his son. Then in, in Psalm 2, the second psalm in the Psalter, 
we're told of the promised Messiah, rescuer and deliverer. In Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we're told that He is God's Son and King. And that if, if He but asks, the nations will be given to Him as an inheritance. So who are these little g-gods? It's my sense that these little g-gods and sons of the Most High are human beings within the nation of Israel who have been given elevated positions of authority to represent the one true God to the people of Israel. We know that priests and prophets and kings within Israel were in a unique and special way commissioned and commanded to represent God to the nation. These little g-gods and sons of the Most High are people within the nation of Israel who have been given that responsibility, but they have failed miserably. Now, up until this point, I've kind of kept hidden uh, the main reason that I've come to the conclusion that these little g-gods and sons of the Most High are human persons within the nation of Israel who have been given this elevated position of authority to represent God in exercising His righteous authority. But now, I want to tell you the main reason that I take that position. And it's because Jesus said they were. So, uh, this, this is why we read John 10 earlier in the service. Uh, that's who Jesus said they were in John 10. Um, it's, this, and this is another reason why it's so important to read the Old Testament in conversation with the New Testament. And the New Testament in conversation with the Old Testament. And, and frankly, I think that if we were left with just the Old Testament, some of the truth and power of this psalm would be hidden from us. But praise be to God that all of the Old Testament anticipations are answered in Jesus Christ. So I want us to turn again. I know we've already read it, but I want us to turn again to John 10. So keeping one finger here, turn to John 10 in your Bibles. Turn to John 10. Uh, we're we're going to look just briefly at verses 31 to 39. John chapter 10, verses 31 to 30. And the, the page in the Bibles provided is page 897. 897 of the Bibles provided. Hopefully having already read this text, it will give us greater clarity uh, to see what Jesus says about Psalm 82. You'll remember from our reading earlier that Jesus, He was asked uh, by the Jews gathered around Him whether or not He was the Christ. They're specifically asking Him, are you the Messiah? And He answered by telling them that He and God the Father are one. Here was a human being asserting that He was the Son of God. Now begin reading there in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone Him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone Me? Jesus, the Jews answered Him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you... Being a man, make yourself God. Pause. So the Jewish religious leaders would not believe the divine and miraculous works that Jesus was performing identified Him with the Father. They revealed His mission given to Him by the Father. And Jesus, no doubt perhaps a little sarcastically, asked them, For which of the many good works are you going to stone me. For which of the many good works that I've done on behalf of my Father are you going to stone me? And the religious leaders informed Jesus, no doubt with a good bit of frustration, that they're going to kill him for his blasphemy. Specifically, they're going to kill him because he is a man who was revealing himself to be God. 
Now, we need to be fair to these Jewish religious leaders, for they had rightly understood Jesus. He was a man who was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be both fully man and fully God. And Jesus is going to respond to their hatred by saying that He was fully man and fully God, and that this was fully consistent with their monotheism and their Old Testament scriptures. Jesus proves this by citing the psalm we're studying together today. He cites Psalm 82, verse 6. So keep reading now in John 10. Pick up in verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, here comes the quote from Psalm 82, I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God. Because the Jewish religious leaders have rightly understood him, Jesus has a charge of blasphemy before him that he needs to answer. Now, if Jesus were a smart politician, he would walk back his statements, but he doesn't. He maintains them and strengthens them. Here is how Jesus structures his argument. First, he asserts that the word of God cannot be broken. That it is fully and eternally trustworthy and true. And just a side note, if we are going to call ourselves followers of Jesus, we must view the scriptures how he views them. They are the very word of God which cannot be broken. Now, based upon that foundation, the word of God that cannot be broken, Jesus then reminds his hearers that secondly, the psalmist called those to whom the word of God came, God's. Human beings, those who received his word, most likely on Mount Sinai. He then concludes that there is, therefore, no reason that he should be guilty of calling himself, a human being, the Son of God. Actually, Jesus' argument is stronger than that. For Jesus basically asks, why should he be guilty of blasphemy if God, if Yahweh himself, sent him into the world with the authority to declare that he is in fact God's son. Jesus is saying, based upon Psalm 82, it's okay for a human, for me, Jesus, to claim that he's the son of God, especially if that is what God sent him into the world to reveal. No wonder they sought to arrest him. Now here's how this comes to bear on Psalm 82. Not only does it fully and finally answer the question of who these people, these little g-gods and sons of the Most High were, they were human beings, but John 10 also reveals that Jesus is the true Son of the Most High, who will resolve the problem of Psalm 82 through answering the petition of Psalm 82. But we need to think about what those two things are. We need to think about what the problem and petition of Psalm 82 are. So turn with me back to Psalm 82 in your Bibles. And, and here we're going to consider our second point, the problem. What's the problem that this psalm presents? And as we do, let's read the psalm again. The psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? 
Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now the problem of Psalm 82 is introduced to us through that ominous word judgment there in verse 1. From the vantage point of the psalmist, God has entered into the heavenly courts to offer His judgment. For what? The answer comes to us in the form of a question there in verse 2. These human rulers have been judging unjustly, which is to say that they have shown partiality toward the wicked. They have been declaring right those who are actually in the wrong. The Lord asks this question, but it's not as though He doesn't know the answer to it. It's an accusatory question. It's something like um, when a parent sees one child strike another when they enter into the room, they say, what have you done? Well, the parent knows exactly what has happened. And the question forms to prick the conscience of the offender. And because the Psalms were often sung, that word say law there at the end of verse 2 is probably a musical notation of some kind. Perhaps it's a pause in the song, a pause that would allow one to reflect on what has just been said, or a pause which allows one to prepare for what is about to be said. In this instance, it's likely a dramatic pause for underscoring the problem, letting the question sink in, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? How long? After identifying the problem through a question, the Lord goes on to identify the problem through an admonition. The admonitions of verses 3 and 4 function in such a way as to press upon the consciences of the guilty judges what they should have done. So do you see how the Lord is kind of coming at the problem from different angles? Through a question, the Lord is identifying the problem as a sin of commission, something they have done. Then through the admonitions of verses 3 and 4, the Lord is identifying the problem as a sin of omission, what they have not done. They have been partial to the wicked when they should have been just and generous to the weak, the fatherless, the destitute, the afflicted, and the needy. God cares about the weak, the fatherless, the destitute, the afflicted, and the needy. He cares about those in power exercising their authority in a way that reflects His authority. He hates injustice, and He will judge it. But let us be very careful here, for we could go astray in a very dangerous way. While, yes, we can say at one level the problem is injustice, still at another level, that is not the fundamental problem of this psalm. Hear me clearly. The injustice mentioned in this psalm is the fruit of the problem. It is what is flying off the trees and pummeling the weak and the afflicted. But it is not the root of the problem. Injustice is the fruit of the problem, but it is not the root of the problem. The root of the problem is found in the rebellious hearts of men and women who act unjustly. 
This is always the fundamental problem presented to us in the Bible. It is the problem from which all other problems in their various forms spring. And it's right there in verse 5. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. Is it any wonder that they have not judged in accordance with God's justice? How can they? For they are in darkness. Psalm 39, 36, verse 9 says that in God's light we see light. If they are not in God's light, nor do they see light and righteousness, it is no surprise that they do not judge justly. And is it any wonder that the foundations of the earth are shaken? You might think to yourself, what, what can that mean? Friends, this is how ultimately frightening our sin and rebellion is. The consequences of our sin function so as to unravel the created order. When injustice rules a society, chaos reigns, and to a certain extent, the created order breaks down. As those made in God's image, we instinctively know this is true. That's why politicians on both the left and the right use the language of brokenness to invite people to vote for them and support them and their solutions. Both sides of the political aisle have different visions of, of how to fix the brokenness that they see. But neither the left nor the right has the ultimate answer. Sometimes the answers coming from both sides actually add to the brokenness. But give them credit for recognizing what everyone recognizes. That there is brokenness in our world. Just think about those who are being oppressed in this psalm. Think about the plight of the fatherless and orphans. Who will protect and provide for them? Think about the weak and the destitute, by which the psalmist seems to mean the poor. How often are they preyed upon for cheap labor? How often are they ignored and treated as less than human? Their very creatureliness is undermined. The consequences of sin undermines their very humanity. Or, or how about another example, perhaps one that's a little closer to some within evangelical Christian circles. In evangelical Christian circles, it's common these days to speak about the institution of marriage as the foundation of society. And I'm not quibbling with that right now. All I'm saying is that evangelical Christians will often speak of the erosion of that institution of marriage through the justice system as shaking the foundations of society. The consequences of our sin and rebellion aims at unraveling the created order because they challenge, they are a challenge to the Creator God and His right to rule. And since we know the storyline of the Bible, we are not at all surprised to find in this psalm that the problem of sin is followed by a promise of death. Remember, that's what happened in the very beginning of the Bible. Just after God created the world and all that is in it, He created man and He set him in a beautiful garden. He could eat of the fruit of any tree in the garden except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God told Adam that he may not eat of that tree, and that if he did, he would die. And what does God say in verse 7 about those who have been ruling unjustly? You're going to die. You may occupy an exalted place of authority, but like the rest of mankind, like the rest of royalty in the world, you will die. This reminds me of what Jonathan Edwards once said in his sermon. 
He said, death serves all alike. As he deals with the poor, so he deals with the rich. Death is not awed at the appearance of a proud palace, a numerous attendance, or a majestic countenance. It pulls a king out of his throne and summons him before the judgment seat of God with as few compliments and as little ceremony as he takes the poor man out of his cottage. Death is as rude with emperors as with beggars and handles one with as much gentleness as the other. Here is the problem of Psalm 82. Sin leads to destruction and ultimately to death. Now before we discern how the final petition of Psalm 82 resolves this problem, I think we need to pause and think through a, matter of, a few matters of application for our own lives. The God of heaven sees what is occurring here on earth, and He cares. He cares about how we as human beings exercise whatever authority we have been entrusted with here on earth. He cares about how and when we deal unjustly with others. And this is not a problem that's distant from us, but occurs in our lives each and every day. Sadly, every day we deal unjustly with one another. For many of us, we have probably even dealt unjustly with one another this morning. Husbands and fathers are to use their authority in such a way that reflects the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and the just priorities of God the Father. Husbands can shepherd their wives and children in ways that are unjust and ways that are just. Psalm 82 ought to chasten us and remind us that we ought to lead our marriages and families with love and justice. There is no place for harshness with our wives. There is no place for favoritism and partiality in our parenting. The same is true for wives and mothers. Uh, moms, you have been given a measure of authority over your children. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, we're told that children are to obey their parents, which includes you, moms. They're to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. Make sure that when you call your children to obey, you're not lording your authority over them. If it is right for your children to obey, then you must be careful to use your authority in a way that reflects the God of heaven. Children, youth, young adults, this applies to you too. Sometimes your parents will actually delegate their authority to you. They may give you the authority to watch your younger siblings. They may put you in charge of your siblings and call you to clean a certain portion of your home. You then have the authority to tell your younger siblings what to do. When you have that authority, you must exercise your authority in accordance with God's character, patiently, with gentleness and understanding. You should think of Jesus and about how he taught his disciples to serve by first giving them an example of humble service. And this could be true in the classroom as well. Your teacher may ask you to lead a group of students to do a certain project. Think about what an opportunity that is to reflect the character and justice of God and the humble service of Jesus. 
The applications outside the home may even be more numerous than those inside of our homes. Christian, think about your workplace. If you are an employer, a manager, or a supervisor, be sure to deal justly with your employees. Guard yourself against partiality. If you're an employee, remember that you have a certain amount of authority delegated to you. Sadly, we've probably heard the stories of the DMV worker who has misused their authority to deny basic requests. Sadly, we too have probably done the same. Let us be wary of using the authority entrusted to us to inflate our sense of self-importance. Be wary of showing partiality to one client or customer or constituent as opposed to another. For those of you who are lawyers and who have the privilege and responsibility to help craft laws and regulations, keep the concerns of Psalm 82 in mind. In as much authority as you have, endeavor to provide justice and mercy to the weak, the fatherless, the distressed, and the destitute. While we help and work toward such generous justice, let us remember that we're dealing with the fruit of the problem. We should give aid where we can, but we must remember that dealing with the root of the problem does not fundamentally occur through changing a political leader, changing personal behavior, or changing our polemics. Fundamentally, dealing with the root of the problem comes through our proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. It is only when hearts are changed through the gospel that the embrace of God's justice is possible. This change occurs through us first recognizing just how unjust we have been. It occurs through us recognizing just how out of step we are with God's righteous standards. It occurs through a spotlight being shown on our lives, which reveals that we have walked in darkness. Well, now that we have thought about the unjust people of Psalm 82 and how we are a lot like them, in fact, sadly, we are them. We display the same problems that their lives did. Let us consider the petition of Psalm 82 and how it answers the problem. Uh, So this is our third and final point, the petition. It's found in verse 8. Read just verse 8 this time. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. You know, a few weeks back we studied Psalm 10. We thought about that first word there in verse 8. It's a request for the Lord to arise and do something, for the Lord to assert himself in the midst of this scene. The God of heaven is the only solution to the problem of injustice on earth. This request for God to arise is a petition that occurs frequently throughout the Psalms. But notice what the psalmist wants God to arise and do. He wants God to arise and judge the earth. Do you see how the rescue from the unjust situation facing the people of God finally comes through the judgment of God? The scriptures teach that as our church's statement of faith says... On the last day, the Lord Jesus Christ will descend from heaven and raise the dead from the grave to final retribution. That a solemn separation will then take place. 
that the wicked will be adjudged to endless punishments and the righteous to endless joy. And that this judgment will fix forever the final state of men in heaven or hell on principles of righteousness. When we think about our lives, when we think about the injustice that we have committed, what hope do we have of God judging us on principles of righteousness? We have no hope in and of ourselves. No, our only hope is to hide ourselves in the one who has been perfectly righteous and just. To hide ourselves in the one who has been judged. The good news of the Bible is that God planned to send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to earth. Not just once, but twice. The first time he came to rescue the weak. When he comes again, he will come to judge the wicked. Think about what Romans chapter 5 verse 6 says. It says that while we were still yet sinners, or some translations actually use the word weak, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. How amazing is that? It is wonderfully amazing because apart from the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in his first advent, in his first coming and appearing, we would all suffer under the eternal judgment of God at his second advent, his second coming. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the good news that we want you to understand and not just understand, but come to embrace in repentance and faith with your whole life. Friends, the Bible and Psalm 82 teaches us that the wickedness of the wicked will come to an end because God will arise to judge the earth. There is no place on earth that we can run in order to escape his judgment. The truth is, is that we have all rebelled against God. We have all been his enemies. We have all decided that we want to throw off his authority to live our own way. And this is what the Bible fundamentally calls sin. Sin is living our own way rather than living God's way. It is the source of injustice that we see in our lives and the source of injustice that we see in the lives of others and the source of injustice that we see in the world. We cannot be surprised by this for when we throw off God's righteous ways for our less than perfectly righteous ways, the result of that unrighteousness and injustice is the guaranteed fruit of walking in darkness. When we sin and live our own way, we are attempting to set up our own authoritative throne opposite of God's. We are now judging and ruling. It is this rebellion which makes us God's enemies. And it not only makes us those who show partiality to the wicked, but it makes us the wicked. It is this rebellion that angers God. And rightly so, for He has given us life and breath, and we have chosen to use our God-given lives, gifts, and abilities to reject Him. We've lied, cheated, stolen, lusted, murdered others in our hearts, and helped people in their wickedness. These offenses and others are offenses against the eternal God, all of which deserve an eternal punishment, and that is what hell is. That is what will come either at our death or when God finally does arise to judge, whichever comes first. We all stand in danger of facing God's terrifying judgment and wrath for all eternity. 
And still the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, that there is hope for God's enemies. God sent His Son to live and die for His enemies so that they might be reconciled to God. God invites us to know Him, to love Him, to serve Him, and to trust Him. He invites us to know His saving, rescuing, and redeeming love by laying down our arms of war and taking refuge in His one and only most beloved Son, Jesus. In love, God took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was fully man and fully God, just as He told those Jewish religious leaders He was. He lived the life that we have not lived. The life of perfect obedience and love toward God the Father. He never preyed upon the poor, the helpless, or the weak. His life was completely absent of all wickedness, injustice, and sin. He always dealt justly with those around Him. And unlike us, every thought, every word, and every deed of Jesus was righteous and just. And yet Jesus died. On the cross, Jesus took the sins and the punishment for them of all of those who had ever turned from their sins and put their faith in Him. Jesus substituted Himself for sinners and took their punishment. He bore in His body on the tree the eternal wrath of God. And three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead was God's declaration that He was just throughout the whole course of His life. Where you and I have not been. And it was because He was judged. We don't have to be. Friend, Jesus says to you, Come and take refuge in me. Come and believe that I lived for you and died for you and rose for you. Come and avoid the terror of God's eternal wrath and know God's eternal blessing by believing in me. On the last day, you will face Jesus. Will you face him as your judge? Or will you face him as the one who was judged for you? Turn from your sins and come to Jesus in faith. So that on the last day when He comes in judgment, He comes to gather you into His kingdom. Which is where I want us to conclude. Christian, remember that the ancient people of God sang this psalm with great expectation. They longed for God to answer the petition of Psalm 82 verse 8. Is this something we long for in our day-to-day lives? I think that this is something that we can learn from the ancient people of God. They looked forward to the last day when God would arise to right all wrongs. The faithful people of God in the Old Testament were disturbed by the wrongs that they saw occurring around them. They were unsettled by it. And those who trusted truly trusted the Lord, longed for a better country, a heavenly one. Do we? It is the work of Jesus Christ in His first coming that causes those who put their hope in Him to actually long for His second coming. It is because of what Jesus has done in His first coming that we can actually pray 
Psalm 82, verse 8. We can pray, Arise, O God, judge the earth. You shall inherit all the nations. Christian, do you know why we can and should pray with hearts filled with unending gratitude? Because we are His inheritance. We are His treasure. He asked the Father to give us to Him. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, God said to His Son, Ask of Me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus must have asked God the Father to give Him a people for Himself. And God must have said yes, for Jesus said to His followers, what in Matthew 28, 18? He said, Go and make disciples of all nations. He said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. Go and claim My inheritance, My people. Jesus sent people after us, brothers and sisters. Jesus sent people after you to address the problem of your heart and my heart with a proclamation of His saving love. He has not yet returned, which must mean that there is more work of proclamation yet to be done for you and for me. And while we pray, come Lord Jesus, let us proclaim that He has come and that He is ready to receive rebels into His kingdom. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give You thanks for Your mercy towards unjust rebels like us. We give You thanks that You have truly addressed the, the problem of our hearts through the preaching of the good news of Jesus. Lord, we pray and ask that you would help us to look forward to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, to long for it each and every day, and to proclaim the good news that he's coming again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.